Howdy. Welcome back. Uh, we are glad to have you back. Hopefully you had a great break and uh, are feeling at least a little bit ready to get back into the swing of things. Uh, if you have a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 15. That's where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to start in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brethren, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon is related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he has read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. That in it we find life, in it we find a message of grace, that we are no longer bound by law-keeping, and there's nothing that we can do, there's no status we can attain by our own righteousness that will earn us your love, your forgiveness, or your smile. Father, I pray that we would live in light of the grace of God given to us through Jesus Christ. I pray if there are any here this morning who don't know it, don't understand all that Jesus has done, that you would make it clear this morning. May your spirit move. Open up our minds that we would understand your word, remove distractions and fears and worries, move in our hearts, strip away our doubt and our refusal to obey, and then empower our hands and feet for your service. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
How many of you saw the new movie Les Mis? Les Miserables, right? I can't pronounce it. Okay. A lot of you guys. Okay. I uh, have not seen yet the new movie. I'm planning to see it this week, but I've seen a number of versions of this story. I've seen the stage musical upon which this movie is based. I've seen the old movie with Liam Neeson and Jeffrey Rush. Great story. And uh, if you're not familiar with the story, let me just summarize it briefly. It's set in the country of France back in the early 1800s, and uh, it centers around a guy named Jean Valjean, who is a convict. He goes to prison when he's a young man for stealing, serves a 19-year prison sentence, gets out on parole, and because of his desperation, immediately resorts to stealing again. And when he is almost caught, a priest saves him from prison by covering for him with the authorities and hands him the silver candlesticks that he was going to steal. And he says, with this silver, I have purchased your soul. Go make yourself an honest man, right? And Jean Valjean changes his name, moves to a new community and begins to live in light of the forgiveness and the mercy that he's been given. But if you know the story, you also know there's another major character, Inspector Javert, And this is where you hiss, right? Inspector Javert is a lawkeeper. He's the policeman who pursues Jean Valjean, determined to bring him back to justice. He cannot accept that a man who was once a criminal could really be transformed. And so as you walk through the story, you see this unbelievable contrast between a man whose life has been transformed by grace, by undeserved kindness. And another man who says, there's no such thing as grace. There's only law. And I will enforce it, even if it means my death. It's a beautiful story. And I think one of the reasons it resonates with many of us is because that's a tension that I would guess we all feel uh, from day to day and week to week. You'd think that it would be easy to accept a free gift, right? That's what grace is. God has given us in Jesus Christ the free gift of eternal life. Apart from what we have done, Jesus died for our sin so that we could be forgiven and he rose again. And all we need to do is believe, trust in him for eternal life and God's approval. But the reality is that we seem wired to want to earn God's favor. We seem wired to want to believe that if I do certain things better than other people, then God will love me more. I'll be superior to others. I can draw circles around certain people and say, these people are in God's favor and these people are out. And I can look over at this person and say, he's just a little bit less good than I am. The early church really wrestled with this issue of grace. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ radically transformed the way that the first century Jewish people thought about their relationship to God, right? Because if you were a Pharisee in particular, the Pharisees were the law keepers. They were much like the inspector Javert's of their day. These guys had spent their whole life learning the law, studying the law, keeping the law. They had codified it into over 600 commands that they would keep. And then they would turn to you and say, you have to do it also. And those who can keep the law like this are in our club. Those who can't, you're out. If you're in our club, God likes you better. If you're out of our club, not so much. And so when the gospel comes, and particularly Paul begins to preach that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, by the grace of God given in him alone, 
apart from the law. That creates all kinds of tension and challenge. And I think even if you believe in Jesus Christ today, my guess is you struggle with that at times. My guess is that as you sit here, because I know it's true of me, there are things that you say, when I do this, I feel like God loves me more. When I don't do this, I feel like he doesn't love me. When I sin in this way, I think God takes his approval away from me. But when I don't, I feel like he approves of me. Maybe I even look at other people and I say, they do that. I don't. So I'm better or I'm worse. That's the classic struggle of the Christian life. I ran across a quote from a second century Christian school. And this uh, dialogue is framed as a dialogue between a young man and his teacher. And the young man says, I am in earnest about forsaking the world and following Christ. But I'm puzzled about worldly things. What is it I must forsake? A young man asks. And here's the answer from his teacher. His teacher says, colored clothes for one thing. Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that is not white. Look around you. A few of you are righteous this morning, but not the majority. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments and don't eat any more white bread. You cannot, if you are sincere about obeying Christ, take warm baths or shave your beard. To shave is to lie against him who created us, to attempt to improve on his work. All right, I'm going to start using that, actually, if I have a couple days stubble, right? My wife says, why haven't you shaved? I don't want to lie against God, right? And we laugh at that. We go, wow, that's kind of silly. But the reality is that often we import our own set of legalistic standards. We recognize that maybe shaving, not shaving, that doesn't earn you approval before God. Colored clothes or a soft pillow. Yeah, whatever. Ha ha. We laugh at those people. But we have our own little standards and our own little games we play, right? So we may say, look, I have a 45-minute quiet time. Yours is only 25. Woe to you. Right? Or maybe we say, look, I dress this way and I'm more modest than you. I would never dress like this person sitting next to me. I never spend my extra money at Starbucks. I spend my extra money to build wells in Africa. I don't do a summer corporate internship like the rest of you heathens. I go on a mission trip. Now, are all those things good things? Is it good to read your Bible? Certainly. Is it good to go on a mission trip? Certainly. In fact, we have summer project applications on our website right now that we'll encourage you to sign up for. But the question becomes this, do I use these works or lack thereof as a way to say, I'm better or I'm worse? You fit in my group or you don't. God loves you more or he doesn't. Or instead... Do I follow the Spirit, recognizing that I serve Jesus because I've been transformed, because I've been given his grace, and I want the world to see his grace. I want to see unity in the church. I know that sin is destructive and sin leads to death, so I pursue Jesus Christ instead of saying, I'm going to check off the boxes so God loves me more. The early church had to face this issue. On what basis Does God approve of you? If you're sitting here this morning, here's the message you need to hear from this passage. God loves you because Jesus died for you. God loves you because he's lavished his grace upon you in Jesus. And there is no other basis 
upon which you're accepted. You don't bring anything to the table except for your own sin. And God gives you his grace. That's what the early church had to come to recognize. So we look at Acts 15. We're going to see how they wrestle through this issue and come to the conclusion that it's the grace of God in Jesus Christ that allows us acceptance before him. Look at Acts 15 again, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to obey the law of Moses. Here's the first thing that we see as we look at Acts 15. Some people hate grace. Some people hate it. All right, what is going on? Well, Paul and Barnabas, if you remember, they've just gone on their first missionary journey. They've gone all over the area of Asia Minor in the ancient world, and they've preached the gospel. And if you look up here, I know this is hard for y'all in the back maybe to see, but they've gone all through this area, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Antioch, and Pisidia, Italia, Perga, and they've shared the gospel with Gentiles. And then they sail back down to Antioch from where they were sent. They begin to say, look what God is doing. God is bringing people from all nations to himself to see the Messiah, to understand the Messiah. And as they're rejoicing at this, this is where the legalists come in. And they say, hey, that's great, Paul. That's great, Barnabas. I'm glad that there are Gentiles trusting in the Messiah. But did you remember they need to be circumcised? They need to obey the law. And they argue about this. And so they send Paul and Barnabas all the way down to Jerusalem, right? Where they meet with the apostles, James and John and Peter and all of these apostles. And they again get into a discussion about this. Some of the Pharisees stand up. They say, look, they got to obey the law. They got to be circumcised. Now what's going on here? Why do the Pharisees do this? I think there's a few reasons. First, because they saw the Messiah as distinctly Jewish. If you look back, the Old Testament scriptures are given to the nation of Israel. And it is prophesied that there will come a king over the nation of Israel who will reign, who will deliver Israel from their enemies, who will set up God's kingdom on earth through this Jewish king. And so they say, in order to attach yourself to our Messiah, to Jesus, you got to go the whole way. Be circumcised, obey the law. I think the Pharisees are also concerned just about loose morals. Look, Gentiles are known for sexual immorality and idolatry, and they mixed those two things in pretty nasty ways. So they say, look, the only way to make sure people are good is let's enforce the law on them. I think they're also worried about their own status. What if there are more Gentiles who come to the church than Jews? What if they begin to outnumber the law keepers? And so they set up this standard knowing that it will drive a lot of the Gentile believers away, right? Uh, Not a whole lot of full-grown Gentile men are going to say, yeah, sign me up for circumcision. Not a whole lot of people are going to say, sign me up for the law. Now, what can I eat? I can eat badgers, but not pigs. Like, what is it? And so they set this standard. Imagine that I told you this morning that Jamie, our worship leader, and I decided to start our own little club, and we called it Club Awesome, right? And we say, hey, we're in, we're in our own little club, and you come to me and you say, I'd like to be 
in your club. And I say, awesome. All right, here's what you need to do. If you want to be in my club, you got to wear this chicken suit for a week. Stand up here, sing a song, learn ancient Hebrew and speak it. Right? Climb up on my roof in a lightning storm and fix my antenna right? and wash my car. Then you can join Club Awesome. What would you conclude? You don't want me in Club Awesome. You're trying to keep me out. Exactly. That's what the Pharisees are trying to do. We don't really want them. We want this to stay the way it always has, where we have the status of those who are known as the righteous ones, the good ones, the ones that God approves of. Now, what's interesting is as you look through the New Testament, the church will still encourage and exhort people toward morality, but not so God will approve of them, not so they can exclude others, but instead so they can demonstrate that the grace of Jesus Christ transformed their life and that in the kingdom of God, there is no sin, there is no sickness, there is no suffering. There is unity and joy and purity and righteousness. But the Pharisees say, now you got to check our boxes to be in. My guess is, again, that some of us here this morning, if not all of us, we measure our worth, we measure our approval, we measure our significance based upon what we do. Maybe we even measure someone else's worth and significance. You say, look, I kissed dating goodbye. I, you know, I do the courtship thing. There's a couple on the other side of the room. They are holding hands. God hates them. <laughs> and he loves me. Maybe it is you say, look, I know somebody who says he's a Christian, but I know he drinks. He had two beers one time. I would never do that. It's nasty. God loves me more, right? Maybe it is you say, look, all I listen to is praise music. It's people who listen to country are in a much lower category than me. (laughs) I'll never forget when I was in college, uh, all I really had on my shelf was Christian music. But this guy came into my room, guy I didn't really know very well, and he looked at my set of Christian uh, CDs. We had moved beyond the eight tracks by then. I'm not quite that old. But he looked at my set of CDs and he goes, wow, you have some pseudo-Christian music here and began to evaluate whether my Christian music was Christian enough to meet his standards of Christian music. Wow. You say, that's not me. I would never do that. Gotcha. I know that I can drink a beer. These people over here, mm, they're not quite as good as me. Sometimes we turn it on its head, don't we? And we say what I do, what I don't do, what I know, what I don't know, that separates me from the subpar Christians, makes me one of the best. If we're here this morning, we think that we are approved of by God on the basis of anything other than what Jesus has done. That's legalism. And so as you walk through this passage, what you see is that there are grace haters because they say grace threatens our status. And what I love 
is that Paul and Barnabas see that grace is worth a fight. It's worth a fight. You see this in verse 2 of this chapter. Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them. Down in verse 7, there had been much debate. Then Peter stands up and says, brethren, you know that God chose to bring in the Gentiles. Peter is referring to uh, Acts 10. If you remember in Acts 10, this Gentile Cornelius had trusted in Jesus and received the Spirit. That's probably 10 years before what we're talking about in this passage. And Peter has this realization that God in Jesus Christ gave these Gentiles the Holy Spirit apart from the law. Cornelius was not circumcised. Cornelius did not obey all the details of the law. And yet these Gentiles came to know God. And so Peter even stands up and says, this is how God operates. He saves on the basis of his love and grace. He extends undeserved kindness, undeserved mercy. And Paul and Barnabas and the apostles fight for grace. If you read the book of Galatians, you see Paul with the gloves off, fighting against those who would insist that circumcision and law-keeping is necessary. eternal life. And he even says in Galatians, I opposed even Peter to his face when Peter was hypocritical about this issue of grace, acting like those who kept kosher were better Christians than those who didn't. By the time we get to Acts 15, even Peter recognizes, yeah, Paul's right. Law-keeping can never, ever save. Grace is worth a fight. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get mixed up about what things are important to get all upset about and what things aren't so important, right? So if I'm sitting in a restaurant, waiter is late, slow, my food is cold, I get real angry, right? You want a tip? Here's a tip. Don't be lazy, right? I never have actually done that, but I've been tempted. Maybe your roommate was supposed to pick up the coffee, forgot, you wake up for that 8 a.m. class, there's no coffee, you go beat him with your mug, okay? We get upset about small stuff all day long, don't we? It happens in church, too. I'll never forget when I was working during my seminary years at a church uh, up in Dallas. I was the worship leader for this church, and the pastor had hired me because he said, I want some more young people to come into this church, and so what I want you to do is kind of freshen up our worship music a little bit. Uh, They were doing choruses from 20, 30 years before, and not that those were bad. It was just, he said, we want some younger people, and so do some younger music. And as I began to uh, do what he had asked me to do, uh, some of the members of the worship band got upset. They were about 10 years older than I was, and they called a meeting with the pastor, and they're sitting in this meeting, and I'm sitting there, and they're talking about me, and now they don't like my music. And I'll never forget, one of these ladies said, whatever happened to my music, what I want to sing. In my church. I heard that and I thought, wow. And I told my wife later, I said, I have compassion on that woman because she feels threatened and stressed and overwhelmed. But I said, I want to live my life fighting about stuff that matters. If I'm going to get angry, I want to get angry because people believe that Christians allow people into God based on what they do instead of what Jesus has done. If I'm going to get angry, I want to get angry at those who say, you got to work your way up to knowing God. If I'm going to get angry, I want to get angry at those who diminish the grace of God. 
And I want the purpose and the meaning and the significance of my life to be found in what Jesus has done and his grace and my life's mission to be, to fight over that issue, the grace of God. That's what Paul and Barnabas say. Grace is worth a fight. They fought in Antioch. They fought in Jerusalem for the fact, for the message that only in Jesus Christ do we have eternal life, not by what you do. Only in Jesus Christ are we approved of God. Is your life marked by passionate devotion to that message? Or would people say, yeah, he's really passionate about being at the right places at the right time with the right people. Reading the right books, listening to the right music, doing all the right things and making sure that I do it too. Or are you passionate about saying, the good news is this, you and I are dead in our sin. And God saved us in Jesus Christ. That's what I want to be willing to fight over. To die for. Not some of the smaller issues that we often fight and even die about. Grace is worth fighting for. The reason Paul and Barnabas know that is because they also recognize that grace is the only hope. It's the only hope. Verses 10 through 11, Peter says, Now therefore... Why do you put God to the test, saying this to the Pharisees? Why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And then James goes on and in his speech, he talks about how God from ages past declared that he was going to bring the Gentiles in and build up a people for his glory among all the Gentiles, not based on the law, but based upon his grace. And in fact, even the Old Testament had said in Jeremiah that God says, look, I'm going to bring you back to me. I'm going to restore you, not because you're good. In fact, Israel, you're really bad. You've worshiped idols. You've engaged in sexual immorality. You've become like all of the pagan nations around you, but I'm going to bring you back. Why? For my name. Because I love you and I've chosen you. That's your only hope. My son just turned three a week ago today. And uh, he is an energetic, all-boy type of kid. And he's in this phase where he wants to do everything himself, right? He's learning how to use the restroom all by himself. And I'll just share that with you. It's quite an amazing thing when you see a child learn that. You take it for granted now. You probably never actually go in there and go, this is amazing that I can do this. You take it for granted how glad your parents are that you no longer need their help. My son is learning this, and along with this comes this desire to do everything himself. And so uh, a lot of times I will give him like a shirt, and I'll say, we need to put this shirt on for the day. And I'll start to help him, and he goes, no. I do it myself. So I go, all right, bud, give it a shot. I'll hand him the shirt and he'll start to pull it on and he'll pull his head down and try to get it into that sleeve hole, you know? And then he sticks, you see an arm come out over here and the shirt is twisted and he's like this now and you can't see his face. You can just see the imprint of his face up against the shirt and you hear him go, and I'll just watch him for a minute as he twists and then you hear from inside the shirt, I need help, right? <laughs> and I'll wait until he gets to that point, and then I just, I'll grab the shirt, I'll move his head through the right hole, the sleeves, pull it all together. And I think often that's a picture of what God does with us. We say, look, I, I can do this. I can beat this lust thing. I can beat this pride thing. I can beat this 
body image deal. I can beat all this anger and greed. I can do it. Give me just a minute, God. Here we go. Right? And I think sometimes he just looks and goes, you ready yet? If you're sitting here this morning and you say, yeah, I, just, I need a little bit of grace. You've missed it. If you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, it's all the grace of God that I'm alive, that I have eternal life, that I know Jesus, that I'm accepted by God, you're beginning to understand. It's your only hope. It's your only hope. Paul and Barnabas and the apostles recognized this. The law could never save. In the book of Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. You see that distinction? He makes that distinction. Look, we're Jews. We have the law. We're not sinners. We're not idolaters. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified. In other words, God doesn't declare us righteous by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. I exercise faith in Jesus alone. Even we, we Jews, have believed in Christ Jesus so that we Jews may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. You cannot earn God's approval. It's as true now as it was the moment you believed in Jesus. You cannot earn his approval. Grace is your only hope. You say, well then, how can Christians be righteous? I mean, what if I don't have a list? What do I do without a list of checkboxes and things to tell myself and other people to do? You know the answer the scripture gives? You know what you have? The Spirit of God. He lives in you. The power of God, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you, lives in me. If you've believed in Jesus and through the Spirit of God, we listen and we let him lead. Romans chapter 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free, set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. In other words, I can give you a list of rules all day. You will never keep them because your flesh is weak. But God did this, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You've been made righteous by Jesus Christ, declared that way before God, and now the Spirit lives in you. And you listen to his voice as you read the Word of God, as you pray, as you worship, as you engage in community, and you listen to God's Spirit to see where he would have you go. It's not a list of rules. It's representing Jesus Christ and his character through the spirit who lives within. And then you know what? I give freedom for the spirit to move in somebody else's life differently than in my own. You say, but wait a second. The church has always insisted upon morality and they've even disciplined those who, who did the wrong thing, right? They've even disciplined those who were immoral. Yes, but not to exclude not to set up a caste system. Instead, to pull people back into community and to say the best path for you is to listen to God's Spirit who will promote purity, kindness, peace, joy, 
and the love of Jesus Christ. And we want that for you, and we discipline so that you will return to Jesus Christ. And we listen to the Spirit's voice, and he leads us to act in a way that's consistent with God's character, not so that we can be more loved by God, but so that we can live out the purpose he has for us, to proclaim his glory around the world. Grace is your only, only hope. What I love about this passage is even in the midst of this recognition, the apostles also see one other other important point, that is this. Grace seeks unity. Grace seeks unity. Look at verse 19. James says, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he has read in the synagogues every Sabbath. That it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us having become of one mind to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. And so they read this letter, and on first glance, you read this letter, you go, wait a second, I thought they didn't have to obey the law. Now they're saying, don't eat food sacrificed to idols, uh, don't do this, don't do this. Why are they insisting upon these particular commands? And the reason is this, and James even says it, there are men and women among the Jews for whom these issues are issues of conscience. And so if you're a Gentile and you're a Christian, and you sit down with your big pig leg, and you start eating it, and you've got the blood all over your face, it's going to create some conflict. And what the apostles say is, we would rather you sacrifice your right to eat that, to preserve unity and a focus on the grace of God. And Paul will say the same thing again in 1 Corinthians 8. He says, look, something sacrificed to an idol, not sacrificed to an idol, it doesn't really matter. I know that you can eat it. You know that you can eat it. But for the sake of those who are troubled by it, be gracious toward them. Uh, The issue of fornication, you go, yeah, I thought that was kind of a given, right? You're not supposed to engage in sexual immorality. The issue here probably goes back to Leviticus Leviticus 18. There were certain types of marriages in the Old Testament law that were banned. In particular, those that were uh, between two people who were too closely related. And it seems like the apostles here are saying, just don't bother with those kinds of relationships. Don't make an issue over food or romance, but instead seek unity. And I love this and get this. The heart of God is that he loves even the legalist. He loves even the one who struggles with these. And he says, instead of making an issue out of these things, focus on preaching, proclaiming, and living the grace of God. All right, so that means in my life, there are certain rights and privileges that I may have as a believer in Jesus Christ 
and as a leader and as a minister that I may choose to set aside because I don't want to make an issue of it. Why would I want to make an issue over a glass of wine and cause it to be all kinds of problem when it's really not that important? Why would I make an issue about this TV show when what matters is proclaiming the grace of God in Jesus Christ? Grace says we want to unify around those things that matter and let go of those things that don't. Because that is our hope. That is our focus. And it's our life. Let me ask you a few questions as we wrap up. Have you trusted in the grace of God alone for eternal life? Maybe you're here and you still think there's a way you can earn your way into God's kingdom. Maybe you think you can have eternal life by what you do. Maybe it is you've never thought about this issue. If you believe that because Jesus died for you and rose again, on the basis of that alone, you have eternal life. Now, if you have believed that, then the question is this, do you live in the daily reality of God's grace? Or do you really believe that God approves of you or doesn't on the basis of things you do, don't do, say, places you go? Do you live in that reality day by day? And then do you preach and proclaim God's grace to others? Do you extend it to others? To say, look, we all are desperate, sick sinners. None of us has hope apart from what Jesus has done. Let that be the message of our lives. Let that be the message of this church. And as we sing, allow that to be the substance of our worship. Thank you, God, that in Jesus Christ, you approve of me. I don't have to earn your approval. You've already given it freely. Father, we sing and we praise this morning because death has been beaten. Jesus has risen from the grave and in him we have forgiveness of our sin. We have eternal life and we have your approval through him alone. I pray we would live that way. I pray we would proclaim that. I pray we would be willing to fight for that truth that Jesus Christ is our Savior and our God. As we go out, as we begin classes, as we begin work, and as we move into the world, I pray that our words, our actions, our attitudes would proclaim that grace. We love you, God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.